Dallas. When the ball reaches the bottom of the staff, that crowd is going to go crazy. Happy New Year! These are like, you know, these tiny little trains. You get the electric train, little tiny things. When he used to go around, he used to collect them. He had a collection of trains. I thought, it's really odd that he's got, he's got all these incredible guitars on us, and he gets, a, gets enjoyment out of these tiny little electric trains. And you go, that's cool, man. <laughs> hey, what is going on? Welcome to Sabbath Bloody Podcast of a Madman. Yes, we are deep diving the Prince of Darkness here. It's fun to be back, lads. I got lots of great feedback, some warm welcomes from my homies out there. Excited to be doing this type of shit again. Uh, thanks again, everyone. The interaction and everything, that's what I do it for. So, keep it up. I love you all. <laughs> Let me see your fucking hands. Yeah, albeit very strange times here. You know, everyone's still trying to find the new normal, whatever the fuck that means. But I hope you're all well out there. So, big shout out off the top here. To the Deep Dive Podcast Network as well. My brothers Nate, John, T-Bone, and The Simple Man. A very lovely welcome back from them. Make sure you're keeping up with their feeds too. You might even hear my voice over there, right? You catch my uh, Skinnered Reconsidered appearance there? Crying for the bad man? It's always fun to cross dreams with The Simple Man. But over here, it's all about the madman. So let's not waste any more time, really. I only get like a little small window to record these. I'm doing these... In my very small gaff, I got a corner in my room, and when my wife takes out the kid, you know, I come in here and I just fucking crank it out. So, let's do it. We gotta move fast, so have your tickets ready. <laughs> Only one show in, folks, and already it's the beginning of a new decade here. We got Ozzy, we got Randy, and we got Bobby. Ozzy's glory days have begun. A lot of... Ozzy's stories out there played up like it was just Ozzy and Randy messing about at Ozzy's cottage. Ozzy was humming a tune while fixing Randy some eggs or something, and Randy said, That's brilliant. We'll call it goodbye to romance. (laughs) Although that is a charming bromance way to kind of spin it for the creation of these tunes in early 1980. It's our job on Podcast of a Madman to unpack some of the other people that were involved in this classic album. Ones that have been kind of written out of history, too. So get your scuba gear on, lads, because we're going to deep dive into the amazing record here, Blizzard of Oz, by the band, by the same name, Blizzard of Oz. I mean, that's something that I didn't really mention last week. In retrospect, we all know that it becomes Ozzy Osbourne is the name of this grand project, but when Daisley and Rhodes both signed on, they were under the impression that this was going to be a band record, not a solo deal. You don't believe me? Why don't you check the... The band was called the Blizzard of Oz, by the way. This was not a solo um, Ozzy Osbourne project, how they, um, you know, try to rewrite history and say it was a solo record. No, it wasn't a solo record. It was a band called the Blizzard of Oz, and we worked well together. And that first album was supposed to be just called the Blizzard of Oz after the band. But the record company put in big writing Ozzy Osbourne and in smaller writing the Blizzard of Oz, which made it look like a solo album by Ozzy Osbourne called the Blizzard of Oz, which was bullshit. So for the Blizzard of Oz band, 
the Ardens secure a pretty weak deal for the debut recording sessions here. CBS signs him for a cool $65,000. That's like less than he got from Sabbath when they fired his ass. And for CBS, that's a fucking steal for what they get, right? But it makes for some tight times as far as keeping the band members all happy and for management, you know, wanting to keep the lion's share of any profits that come in from the record. But I guess one good thing is, though, that with such a low-risk, affordable deal being put in place, the lads are pretty much left to their own devices. No outside interference from the distributors. And Personally, I think that helps the record tremendously as far as what you actually get on the record, given the raw talent of the band members. Obviously, it comes back to bite some members in the ass as far as getting credit for the record and the royalties afterwards. And we'll certainly get into all that as the years progress here, but the blizzard commences here. But wait a minute, we still need a goddamn drummer, right? Let's get into our diary proper here. I'll hit you with another Daisley Deet. No, no, we, we looked for months. We auditioned 40, 50 drummers. It was almost getting to the point of, like, pull your hair out. And, and then right at the end, I think we had about a week to go, um, somebody at Jet Records, I don't know if it came from Don Arden himself or might have been David or Arthur Sharp or somebody said, if you don't find a drummer soon, the, you know, we want our product. We, we, we want an album done. Uh, we're going to have to get a session drummer and put them in with you just, just to get the album done until you find the person you want. And, and Cozy Powell was mentioned, the right. drummer from Rainbow. And, um, and we thought, oh, God, you know, it would be better to have the band complete rather than have a session player and then have to keep looking. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And we had one drummer left to audition, and that was Lee Kerslake. Oh. March 5th, 1980, drummer Lee Kerslake joins the band. Lee was already a top-tier hard rock property in his own. The 32-year-old drummer was the founder of the rock legends Uriah Heep. And if you don't fuck with the Heep, you better get on that, son. Right from the debut, they're an undeniably badass band that needs your attention. And the drumming really stands out on those records, too. So, scoring Lee was huge for Ozzy and Co. They really locked in with what Daisley and Randy had already kind of been bringing. So with the quick formality of an addition with Lee at Shepperton Studios in England... Getting that out of the way, they told him that he was their man. Rehearsals moved to an old Sabbath haunt that you should be familiar with, the glorious grounds of Sabbath Bloody Sabbath. Yes, Clearwell Castle, the guys check in there. Maybe sometime around the 6th to the 20th of March. They say that it was six days or so at Clearwell, just workshopping the tunes with Lee. And then by March 22nd of 1980, the recording starts at yet another Sabbath haunt. One that I've had the pleasure of at least driving past. Ridge Farm Studios in Rusper, which is in South England. Not too far from London, really. And the, the initial producer that was signed on for this project, too, was going to be, you guessed it, another Sabs contact. <laughs> I mean, they're all Don Arden contacts, but Christ, man. Ozzy needs to update his Rolodex here. Well, this lad was a future Sabs producer, but a guy who had been the engineer for a bunch of Sabbath stuff. Chris, the eternal idol, Tanga 80s. I love this guy's work. Idol, of course, is one of, if not the, most underrated Sabbath album in their catalog, if I do say so myself. And I have a clip here that I lifted from another fantastic podcast called The Double Stop. One of my favorite podcasts out there. Go check them out and listen to all these interviews in full. So many great, deep-as-fuck interviews. 
Daisley, of course, does one, which we'll need to pull from for some Daisley deets. But really, the podcast at the Double Stop, it's one of the finest interview format podcasts out there. So go subscribe, give the guy whatever he wants. Patreon, reviews, you know the drill. It's the Double Stop with Brian Sword. This clip from that podcast is a rare interview with Chris Tengaitis. I really don't know how to say his last name, but here he is talking about what turns out to be a very brief session with Ozzy here. They took me down to this studio that I'd never heard of or seen or knew. Went in there and there's Ozzy, who I knew from all my days at Morgan. Black Sabbath were in there constantly. I mean, you know, we'd become, and I'd work with them as a, an assistant and so on and so forth. And he's gone, hello, Chris, what are you doing here? I said, I've come to make your record. And he said, well, wait, where's Roy Thomas Baker? I said, I don't know. He was that bastard. The, the last time he'd seen me, I was making him coffee. It was it was tetchy, to say the least. Um, there was, uh, bless him, Randy Rhodes was fantastic. Bob Daisley was great. Lee Kerslake, the drummer. And anyway, long story short, I got an, uh, a near infection and um, I had to leave. You know, so whatever stories that they've said or whatever. Yeah, again, check out that podcast, The Double Stop. We might be going too deep here, though, with these clips because Chris T, we'll call him, <laughs> he was quickly relieved of his duties after only a week of service with Ozzy. As he mentioned there, a lot of the stories just kind of write him off as being a terrible producer and bounced quickly because he didn't know what he was doing. So it's nice to get his perspective on the firing there. Either way, the four band members would go on to co-produce the album themselves with the help of a Ridge Farm staffer at the time, one Max Norman, credited as engineer on this recording, but pretty much the producer. Max is behind the faders for both Blizzard and Diary, so he's kind of like the Roger Bain of the Aussie world here. And lucky for us, he also did an interview with the Double Stop. So let's drop in here. Here's Max Norman. The first time I saw Ozzy was when he walked into the studio. I didn't even know it was Ozzy, actually. I didn't recognize him. It had been some time since I'd uh, seen a picture of Ozzy. This mm-hmm. was 1980, and probably the last picture I saw was on the Black Sabbath album, uh, which I bought when I was, you know, probably 10 years before. Uh, he wasn't in too bad a state. Uh, it, was, uh, it was the 80s, so there was uh, drinking and, you know, whatnot going on, but... Um, for the most part, Ozzy was able to uh, get get the stuff done. So yeah, so we're lucky to do that record, of course. And Randy showed up, and uh, he was that young thing and just ripping the stuff out. And he practiced his, he just practiced all the time. I, I would I would make a loop of uh, fifteen seconds before and after the solo, and I would bounce that loop onto um, onto a onto a quarter inch tape for him, and I'd like get twenty of them on there, so on a big long you know, roll of tape so he could just play it and have it go all the way through and he could start and stop it, you know, where, from where he was on the studio floor. So, uh, and then I would go to the pub for an hour or two and then we, when we got back, sometimes he'd be ready, sometimes he'd just still be practicing. So he, uh, we made exactly the, the amount of songs, almost exactly the amount of songs that were required. In fact, they had to come off the road a couple of times to cut B-sides for stuff because they had singles but didn't have something they could put on the back so Mm. there's a few tracks we did like that where they just came out came off of touring and and um we were in the studio for a couple of days you know a double shot of the double stop i'm sorry brian if i'm using too much of your show here it's keeping me rolling though i hope it doesn't bother you but like i said it's a glorious listen 
Some insight into the process of Ozzy and Randy there, too. Beers for Ozzy, practice for Double R, and <laughs> he alludes to them recording some B-sides, too. Max becomes an absolute legend in the rock world, too. He did some of my favorite Megadeth records later on. And cool to see that this record was his start. That's fucking impressive, right? Also impressive, the record was completed in four weeks, even with all this producer fuckery happening at the beginning. It might be part of what actually helps Blizzard sound so raw in in such a good way. These four guys together, they really had some magic, and no sea of reverb layered on top of them is required to make their stuff work sonically. And it's a brave album, too. Nothing safe about it. It's definitely... They set themselves apart from the classic Sabbath sound that Ozzy would be associated with. And it wasn't following any trends at the time, either, as Daisley kind of sums up in his radio interview clip here. Well, it was it was good to feel that the, the, the situation when it gelled and formed and became complete with the four of us, with Lee, um, to be able to create stuff in an era that wasn't really um, an ideal era for that type of music because if you think um, 1979 going into 1980 which was when all that happened the big things were punk and disco and the sort of new wave stuff and a lot of the stuff that that we'd been involved with or had been a a part of was considered dinosaur by then Mm. but we didn't really think well how can we become in vogue or in fashion? How can we get a hit record? Or how can we make lots of money? Or how can we get airplay? Or, or what's in this week that we can be like, you know? We just went in and we played and we did what we loved and 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 what we wanted to do from the heart. And, and I think that's possibly part of the ingredient that helped to, to give it the longevity and, you know, become the classic stuff that it is now. Another Daisley Deet. Love hearing his admiration for the work that they did. I mean, too many times Daisley is kind of misquoted and comes off as an asshole in all those clickbait articles. But So it's important to actually play his voice here, I think. Because when you listen to Bob's interviews in full, you can really appreciate that he's just fucking pure class about things. And a hell of a writer, too. Some fantastic lyrics on this record. Quite grounded in the human struggle and reality. Like He writes perfectly for Ozzy, almost geezer level playing into his melodies and his vocal timbre. Daisley's really great at creating, like, hooks, too, with the music, you know? Like, much catchier tunes here than anything that's in Sabbath, right from the get-go. I mean, like, catchy in a more upbeat, kind of accessible way. I'm not saying that they're better than the Black Sabbath songs, but shit, like, my mom knows fucking Crazy Train and can sing along to it. I don't think I've heard her sing along to fucking, like, Air Dance or (laughs) fucking Cornucopia or something. Although that would be amazing, but like what I'm saying here is they're more accessible songs. And they have a real kind of upbeat kind of vibe. And that's why you hear them at like hockey games and shit. Like Ozzy is great at like finding those melodies, finding those hooks. And Daisley's perfect at laying some cool words over it. So. Okay, let's not make this the Bob Daisley worship hour here. I'm trying to move faster here for the sake of the podcast being a little bit more digestible. But I'll have to have like a bonus series or something where I really live in these recordings a little bit more. You know, go track by track and talk about these glorious Daisley lyrics and the Randy compositions. I will mention one Blizzard of Oz standout track here, though, briefly before moving on. Because this brings us to the next member of the Blizzard. The boys come up with a great little number called Mr. Crowley. 
to lament on the occultist Alistair Crowley, and they decided that it needed some proper doom-ridden keys, given the doomsayer kind of content that it draws from. Some gothic organ flavors would be the order of the day, right? So Ozzy calls up another name from his Sabbath Rolodex there, Mr. Airdance himself, Sir Johnny Blade. (laughs) Don Airy comes in and lays down some keys on the album. So here he is talking about that first stint, as well as the overall vibes that he gets working with Ozzy. Just said they wanted an intro, and they, the, the band were kind of sitting along the um, next to Max on the along the desk, kind of, oh, try this. I, I threw them all out. I said, go away, go away for half an hour. Come back, see what I've come up with. So it was just me and Max Norman. And Ozzy came back in, and he, he listened to it. He said, it's like he plugged into my head. What, what can I say? You know, at the time, Ozzy wasn't in a very good position. You yeah. know, he was down on his luck, so to speak. Yeah. Taking a tremendous chance putting a band together. Um, you know, the finances were very um, murky for the band at that point. They didn't really have any money. So, you know, I'm just a musician. You, you just try and help. I always felt that it was a band because yeah. Ozzy always knew down, deep down, that that's the only way you're going to produce music and the only way he, he could write songs. Don Airy didn't join the band, at this point at least. By April 19th, 1980, the recording for Blizzard of Oz was complete. The band right away started doing some warm-up gigs with the intention of doing a UK cycle first and then releasing the album domestically in England only. Because things were still regional back then in the 80s, so you could do this, you know, in the pre-Napster days when bands actually had control over their releases and could exploit foreign markets strategically while they tour. Those days, of course, are long gone. Everything's out there all at once. So the band then hired keyboardist Lindsey Bridgewater to come in and play keys live for them. And he sticks around, too. It's hard to find info on Bridgewater, really, outside of the few stories that Ozzy does of taking the piss out of him, playing pranks on him and garbage like that. But here, I do have an excerpt, which I actually transcribed kind of roughly from a great little read that I have called The Story of the Ozzy Osbourne Band by Gary Sharp Young. If you can find a copy of that book too, grab it. It's very cool. If anything, it gets some early unheard voices into the mix, including Lindsay here. He says, I was 22 at the time, and I really fancied joining a rock and roll band and touring America. I had my classical training, and I had gone through Cambridge to get my music degree. Up until then, I had just been playing in a folk rock band, seven people in the back of a transit van, and I think I was just eager to go to the States, really. As soon as I saw the advert, I thought, that's for me. Jet Records sent me a tape, and I was immediately impressed. I loved the guitar playing and the fact that songs such as Mr. Crowley, Vidvillian Instruction? Oh, God, okay. Gonna have to ask my friend Ian DeRossi about that word, Vidvalian. <laughs> really, that really appealed to me. I sat at home and I scored everything, then went to the edition and played it all note for note. They were surprised, to say the least. Well, la dee da, Mr. Cambridge. <laughs> okay, that's Lindsay's new nickname, Mr. Cambridge. Sounds like a proper dork keyboard player to me, but you know, good stuff. You always need one of those in a good rock band. That gives us a full touring lineup too, folks. So let's hit the road. The Blizzard of Oz UK leg. It was at this point too that Sharon Arden was assigned to handle the tour as sort of a day-to-day tour manager. It was also when her and Ozzy kind of start to get a little cozy on the road. <laughs> but 
First tour date is billed as the Blizzard of Oz, featuring Black Sabbath's Ozzy Osbourne. They started in Scotland, September 12th. They bounce around up there for a couple of days. Then they go down through England for the rest of the month. Like The Blizzard of Oz album is also released at this time in the UK, like I said, on the 21st of September 1980. So it's a busy month for the Blizzard. And actually looking at this spreadsheet here, that release date is on the same day that they play the iconic Hammersmith Odeon in London. To a sold-out crowd here, two nights in a row. So a proper reception for the Blizzard of Oz here in Ozzy's homeland. Love that. Then it's pretty much England right through October, November. I'll pull up a set list here, though, too. As you can imagine, it's pretty Blizzard-heavy. <laughs> and here's one from the Garment Theatre in Southampton. So here, this is October 2nd, and the set list here opens just like our show does here, with a little O Fortuna, the epic tape plan as they take the stage. Pure Ozzy there, love that. Then it's the album's opener, I don't know. Then into you looking at me, looking at you. <laughs> I wanna turn to you. <laughs> Sorry, I, I've never liked that track. It's definitely the low point of the Blizzard of Oz, for me at least. And then it's Crazy Train, Goodbye to Romance, No Bone Movies, Mr. Crowley, Little Suicide Solution. Yeah. They only have one album, folks. But to add some variety in here, you can always dip into the motherfucking Black Sabbath catalog, right? Much to the chagrin of Mr. Rhodes, I'm sure. But you get Iron Man, Children of the Grave. I actually love how Randy plays children. So good. And then it's back to another great Aussie live number, Steal Away, parentheses, The Night. Natural encore of Paranoid, which unfortunately has to happen at every Aussie appearance for the rest of time. They bang out a secret song here, and... This is the only known performance of the song, too, so here you go. Here's a little taste of You Said It All. I try to do at least one little live hit every show. I'm not really that freaked about putting tracks into the pod. It's not like this thing's that big, but I at least want to keep it safe and minimal so that it doesn't get taken down and flagged, you know? We're just trying to get a vibe of how the band was cooking anyway. If you want to seek out these tracks, you know where to find them. And I'm not trying to distribute any music illegally. But podcasts do get targeted from time to time, so I'm just saying... That's why the show is like it is. I'd love to be able to just play everything for you and sit and listen to it with you, but I gots to keep it clean. So, what's the real deal with this unreleased track here? You said it all. Now, now I didn't think much of it when I stumbled across it going through the bonus material that's out there. 
it was on a little live EP that they did, just a couple of songs. I think it was just actually Mr. Crowley was on there. I just thought, cool, maybe you said it all was just a song that they were workshopping for the next album. And, you know, it just didn't make the cut. That happens. Songs surface live and never get realized in the studio. But I recall my friend Joe over at Black Sabbath Online, whom you should all know him by this point. He's an amazing source. Phenomenal website that he runs about Black Sabbath. But in this case here, I recall we were just tweeting back and forth one night, I think about Ozzy's singles around the Blizzard album. I don't remember exactly how this came up. He directed me to an old post from a Facebook page called The Randy Rhodes Society. (laughs) Holy fuck, guys. That is a deep feed of Randy worship, if you ever need to get into that. Too deep for me, as I'm not anywhere near as Randy obsessed as the average Ozzy fan is. So I would never come across this site in my own searches, but certainly some facts in his feed there. I just can't be bothered to dig right through a whole fucking years of Facebook feed to get out these facts. <laughs> and I'm not into Randy enough to want to know everything about his gear and like his electric train sets and stuff like that. But it's all in there. And if you want to see that, go check it out. In this case, though, Joe was cool enough to direct me to a specific tasty little Daisley Date. There was a post in there about the song You Said It All's Inception and shine some light on why this is a live performance only of it. I'll just read it here, actually. Like I said, I can't really vouch for the source here, but they do say that it was from Daisley directly. Here it is. Here's the story behind You Said It All, directly from Bob Daisley when I interviewed him a couple years back. There was a mobile studio at the Southampton gig to record the show as Jet Records wanted a song that was not on the album to release on an EP that had not already been used as a B-side. They wanted a live Mr. Crowley and a new song. So we wrote, you said it all. I will tell you how it was written. Randy had a basic riff and Randy and I put together a chord structure that afternoon in soundcheck. Lee got a mic and as he could sing and Lee came up with a vocal melody while Ozzy was asleep under the drum riser. That was his contribution to the song. Ozzy did absolutely fuck all with that song. Nothing, yet he still gets credit on it. I took the tape of Lee's melody back to the hotel and wrote lyrics in the hotel room. It was a big rush. Get it done quick. We want this, you know? We then recorded it at the gig before the audience came in. So yeah, it was recorded live. No audience, but the audience noise was added later from that night. Because it was a new song, we didn't want to include it in the set, as we had not played it before. And Ozzy had never sung it before, as I had just written the lyrics. So he was singing it from a lyric sheet, and that's how it was done. So there you go. Kind of a faked live single. This won't be the last time that they pull a trick like that, mark my words. (laughs) And some daisily ripping into Ozzy about taking credits there. Definitely won't be the last time we hear that. (laughs) But moving along here... Let's put a bow on 1980, a bow tie in honor of Sir Randy Rhodes. Thanks for joining me, as always. Keep up with the Deep Dive Podcast Network, Deep Purple Podcast, Skinner Reconsidered. And keep in touch with me, too, on the Twitter, at SabbathBloodyPC. Five stars on iTunes, if you please. And I'll see you, see you on the other side.